0: This episode is sponsored by Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast presented helpfully here in reverse chronology. Today we're discussing the films of Christopher Nolan in light of his latest Oppenheimer. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, realizing that my greatest triumph has been my greatest mistake. I'm Al Baker.
1: Frequently self-indulgent, but usually worth it.
2: (laughs) My name is Sarah Lynn Bruck, and I've had so little sleep lately, I'm not sure what is a dream and what is reality.
3: My name is Lawrence (laughs) Ware, and I just want to watch the world burn. Hey, folks. It's the beginning of our, did we say
0: season four? Yes, season four. So to start it with a bang... Welcome. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to do video here. So if you're just listening to this, there should be a link from uh, the post associated with this at com that will take you to the video link and you can see our glorious faces as we contemplate this filmmaker who's, who's a very visual person. Absolutely. Sure. Sure he is. <laughs> Al, as a person in the UK who does not like to go out to, to films... Did you actually get to see Oppenheimer now that we gave you an extra week to do it or did you I opt? did get to see Oppenheimer now that you gave me an extra week to do it. I'm
1: really
2: and I'm really
0: glad
1: I did. It's pro- I think it's probably my favorite film of his, maybe second, but it's a mm. really really good one. Really. Mm. And I think it's a really interesting okay. Christopher Nolan film as well. It's got it some is. it leans heavily into some of the things that he does very well and backs dramatically away from some of the things that he does very well, but it's still kind of annoying
0: sometimes. Do we have a a thesis, a hypothesis that we want to go with today? Other than some people think that Christopher Nolan is just visual and kind of gimmicky in his plots and so overrated, but most people seem to feel like he is a visionary. Certainly this latest film, Oppenheimer, for a film to be this long and yet be so wonderfully edited, to be so gripping, so visually stunning. I wasn't expecting that I would want to see this in the theater. It's only because we did this episode that I went to the theater, not only because I just don't want to see three-hour movies in a theater ever, just, you know, it's a historical drama. Why would I care about that? You know, other than the footage of the test explosion, which I knew that, but even with that aside, I still, just his directing style, I would have wanted to enjoy this on a large screen and then listening to podcasts about it. Now I feel like a dope that I didn't go to the IMAX.
2: You didn't go to IMAX. Yeah, that was my question. Did you guys see this in the IMAX? Who who saw I it? I sure IMAX?
0: did. I did. Well I guess you'll just me. You'll, you'll I guess you'll be talking me. about No
2: I did. I did too.
0: What? One quarter of
3: extra movie than we got to see. For it to be a historical drama, it's really visual, really kind of striking. It takes advantage of the fact that it's in IMAX. And so I think that you who did not see it in IMAX are really missing out because you're really missing like the depths of what he's trying to do with like the sound mixing and all that stuff. It really, he uses it to his advantage very much so.
2: Did anybody see this in 70 millimeter?
3: I did not. I, I had no option for that. Did you see it in that? No, yeah, we couldn't I, I get tickets. Yeah, I didn't have the option for that. I heard it looked amazing, but I just didn't get a chance.
2: Yeah. I found a lot of the sound stuff really distracting in IMAX just because it's like I could feel my seat shaking at some parts of the movie and stuff. That's the
3: point. You go to IMAX not to watch a movie, but to be a part of a movie. To be part so of the movie. That's Do they sweat, what they yeah. say. S- sweat
0: on exactly. you.
3: No, that's, that's 40X or something. That's some kind of crazy whatever. No, <laughs> but no, it's really good. I, I really enjoy being immersed, but I will admit that sound mixing is pretty intense.
2: It's very intense. Yeah, it was pretty loud. I think like, I don't know if a good place to start with his movies is about how his movies, and especially with this latest one, are about guys, about dudes, right? It's about the male experience and masculinity.
1: I had exactly the same thought because after we watched the Barbie movie, the first Nolan movie I watched in the the run up to this was Inception, which I hadn't actually seen all the way through before. But there are some elements of that movie which after watching the Barbie movie, I started thinking of the Mojo Dojo Casa House that Ken builds in. And I basically went into rewatching these films because some of the machismo and bravado in Inception is absolutely absurd and it made me laugh. And the kind of question that I came into watching this run of Christopher Nolan films was, is Christopher Nolan a Mojo Dojo Casa filmmaker? Because he has this reputation of being incredibly cerebral and thoughtful. But a lot of the movies he makes are really very dumb in a lot of significant respects. He's got that Rick and Morty fan base problem where his most devoted admirers are incredibly irritating in their admiration of him. Especially around Inception. I remember when that came out, it couldn't move for people telling you that it was far too complicated and beautiful a thing for anyone to fully understand the, the majesty of. And that's why Oppenheimer I thought was incredibly interesting because that is a very, very, very smart movie. And there's very little in the way of like absurd bravado or machismo apart from the way the women are handled in the film, which is like to say they're disposable is barely, that's probably overstating it. They're hardly there. And I don't think necessarily that a film about a historical man living in an extremely patriarchal society needs to pass the Bechdel test. But it was still really striking how shallow the, the women were in the movie.
2: I definitely have thoughts about how he handles women in his movies. And, you know, the dead wife trope is something that we see over and over and over again. But I do think that his movies, they're not feminist by any means. But I also think that he is poking at what it means to be a man. You know, even with Oppenheimer, I mean, Oppenheimer himself was a narcissist and he was full of himself and he pushed his own ideas. He was definitely a complicated figure as all of his protagonists are. They're all kind of morally ambiguous in lots of ways or morally compromised in lots of ways. And that's really interesting. So it's not, I don't feel like he's like pro guy at all. I think he's definitely, but he's exploring what it means to be a man, often at the expense of women.
3: You know, I think that with Nolan, it's a tough question because Nolan is not great with women. He's just not. None of his movies have women characters that are three-dimensional and whatever. So it's clear that Nolan is a really talented filmmaker it's clear that he has a very unique perspective and he kind of drills into that perspective. I don't know if we should fault him because he's not good with women. Ideally, a film should include three-dimensional women. And I think he tries to do so. I just think that he fails to do so. And I don't know if that is a drawback of his talent and his ability in his movies, or is that just like just the nature of them? So for example, there are other filmmakers who weren't very good with women. I think that Stanley Kubrick could have done a little bit better when it came to women. Alfred Hitchcock could have done a little bit better when it came to women. But their movies are still really, really good and really, really noteworthy. And so I think that Nolan is kind of in that that lane, but his movies have so much else going for them that maybe we understand the limitation, but also see how he does something really interesting and really unique.
1: There's a criticism, I think, that lands there. But I think the more interesting... Which I think is what Sarah Lynn was, like, started this off with, and I, I turned it into more of a criticism. But it is interesting how his focus is masculine. Like, Killian Murphy is, seems like the ultimate muse for him because it seems like there's a certain kind of guy that he likes to have as his leading man, right? The Christian Bale, and who was it Memento?
2: Oh, Guy Pearce.
1: Guy Pearce. There's a brooding, tortured quality to them and it's this matthew mcconaughey is kind of the most interesting variant of them i think or at least stood out to me but they are all the same and it's really fascinating is that a self-insert is that what nolan
2: yeah that's what i was thinking is he just like inception is supposed to be or one reading of inception is that it's about filmmaking it's about christopher nolan as a filmmaker and all of the the thieves were you know represent the director and the producer and that in essence, you could boil down all of these movies in some way that they are actually just about Christopher Nolan himself as a filmmaker.
0: I wonder if he's not playing with the fact that film does not show the insides of people's minds in the way that novels do. And so some of them, like Dunkirk, which I saw for the first time in preparation for this, are explicitly not inside anybody's mind. Like it goes back and forth between a few characters, mostly one that you don't learn the name of. Also, Tenet, the main character played by John David Washington, does not have a name. (laughs) Is literally called the protagonist. Yeah. And so when he does go internal, whether he's trying to get into Batman or into Oppenheimer, then he does it in a very, very focused way or memento. You're living the life because of the sequence in which it is shot of... You know, as close as an external observer could get to that character with these memory problems. Of course, you know, I guess you'd want to just watch one segment at a time and then drink a lot and then (laughs) watch one more segment. If you actually want, you know, so we can't do it for real, but we want to come close. And I just thought in Oppenheimer that nobody else is getting the treatment. Nobody's three dimensional. Oppenheimer is himself that we get to look into his eyes many times, but everybody else, even the villain of the piece, we get to see some conversations. But the fact that it's such a surprise that it's sort of a, a, you know, that heel turn that he makes the Robert Downey Jr. character is because we haven't really been seeing much of the movie. I guess a little bit. He's watching Oppenheimer and Einstein talk, right? For once, you know, so there's maybe a couple scenes, but I felt like the same thing, like there were hints of depth with his wife throughout the movie but it just did not dwell on what it's like to be Oppenheimer's wife. Like the whole thing could have been told from her point of view. It's just not what he chose to do.
2: Well, she was supposedly, she and, and uh, his mistress were supposedly intellectually, certainly the mistress was intellectually his equal, right? So she was the one who supposedly got him. And I think so many of the women in these pieces are supposedly the people who understand these guys perhaps the most which he uses when they lose these women, that becomes what propels their particular narratives forward, which is kind of a cheat on one hand. (laughs) But on the other hand, you could say that some of these characters, these women are, if not three-dimensional, they're at least strong in their own way.
3: I mean, I thought Florence Pugh was really good in the film. Did she have great depth? No. but. There was a lot there, you know, and and I think Florence Pugh brought a lot to the film and it was written there. And if you're missing anything, it's going to be in the performance, not in the intention. Like they, They spent a lot of time trying to explain what was going on with that character, why the character was so difficult for Oppenheimer to kind of deal with. Now, of course, Oppenheimer is the center of the narrative, but she as a peripheral part of the narrative and really not. In the movie a great deal, in fact, so much so that I would be shocked if she's not nominated for an Oscar. like that's how much depth I thought she brought to the character. So I really think now, when it comes to Oppenheimer's wife, yeah, that's lacking for me. When you know the story, you know that there's so much more they could have done with that character. when it comes to Florence Pugh, I really thought that was pretty
2: good. I really enjoyed that and you're right. I think she had a great performance. And I thought, what's her name? Who played the wife also had a really good performance. But Nolan has admitted that on the page, the female characters don't have much. But if you take a look at Natalie from Memento and how much Carrie Ann Moss puts into her performance, she gives that character a lot more heft than is on the page. And he admits that, that he is kind of a woman problem. But I think the performances really make them into more than what they were on the page. But still, they're there to serve the male story.
3: And the question that I have, and it kind of stems from something that Al has said, many pe- and many people have said, that Christopher Nolan is really, really good when it comes to spectacle. But when it comes to human emotion, he's not as successful in that. And I think that Oppenheimer is really the biggest challenge he's faced of trying to put emotion on screen. Like, what do you guys think about that? Do you think he did good in this film, at least? I think Oppenheimer's a really interesting, clever figure
1: for Nolan to explore, at least the way Khalil Murphy interprets Oppenheimer. It seems like he struggles with understanding or engaging with the emotional and moral world in something like the way that Christopher Nolan seems to also struggle to engage with the emotional and moral world. Something I really loved about Oppenheimer is the way They handle his conflicted moral stance, the way he breaks down in the interrogation scene, all that kind of stuff that looks really beautifully done. But the fact that he chose to focus on someone who would have those kinds of complicated feelings and maybe wouldn't be sure about where they stood and was eccentric and all the rest of it, I think says a lot about the kind of person Christopher Nolan at least thinks he can understand. He doesn't make kitchen sink dramas, probably for a reason.
2: No. His movies have been definitely characterized as cold, which doesn't bother me. That doesn't really bother me. But I you know, if I think back to Interstellar, that I think is probably his warmest movie. His There's a really strong emo- emotional core to that song. movie. For sure. But But is that all
1: in Matthew McConaughey? (laughs)
2: That was in Matthew McConaughey, and that was... It was also
3: in the the female... The daughter. Yeah, the daughter. Good character.
2: That was a good character, but it was still about his uh, Matthew McConaughey's. What was his name? Cooper? It was his story. And that one also, I think he relies on the score for his emotional heft. The Hans Zimmer score for Interstellar especially was at the end of that movie. I was... Why do I feel so? Why is there such a rock in my chest at the end of this? But I think he kind of relies more on the external stuff than the internal writing and everything for any kind of emotional reality within his stories.
1: He's a big idea filmmaker isn't he? like he wants to like tackle a big theme in all of the all of the movies that he makes, and it's kind of similarly to what to to what Lawrence said about his problem with women like he really isn't trying to make emotionally compelling movies or at least I hope not because he's doing mostly a very bad job if he is but this is where I genuinely don't know if he is a genius or if he's like a big pseudo intellectual crank because the topics that he chooses to explore are so meaty and like ethereal, ephemeral rather and just I always well maybe until Oppenheimer, but I, I come away from his films feeling like I haven't given anything very profound connected to the the theme that he wants to explore i don't know if that's necessarily a problem because it feels it always feels like the theme has been played with like in memento like memory and experience and guilt and all that kind of stuff and and inception is obviously like dreams and reality and so on and you get, i always come away from these movies feeling like those ideas have been explored and played with but i don't necessarily
3: know at the end what i got out of it what do you guys think
2: are we supposed to have answers like is it, no, or is it I
3: don't no no I don't think we're supposed to. Nolan is like a student who got an undergraduate degree in philosophy who then began making films and brings to bear all the stuff they learned as an undergraduate in philosophy, but they don't have the higher division level knowledge to make it like systematic, if you will, right? And so here's the thing. So people who watch Nolan films and oftentimes you're bored they tend to be philosophical thinking people right they tend to be people who are like oh man what nolan did with inception man i've read better than that in my sci-fi i've read a, i've read better than that in the philosophy that i think about or whatever nolan was trying to do with the moral complexity of human nature oh i've read better than that in any, intro good, to any good literature or something yes. yeah anything good li-. and so the thing here then is that people who have not been exposed to that grand history of literature and the grand history of philosophy are going to be like, holy crap, did you see this movie? It revolutionized my mind. When in reality, we've been dealing with that for years in philosophy. So here's the thing. So Nolan is really good at giving like freshman level philosophy movies, but you're not going to get graduate level philosophy movies a la Kubrick, A la 2001 is Space Odyssey, those kinds of films, you're not going to get that from Nolan, but you will get the lower level division. So the point here then is that I think Nolan is really good with ideas. He's really, really good with ideas. He's just not good at like bringing something new to the idea. And so the question becomes, are you comfortable with the fact that he's just really good at giving you a base level examination of this philosophical idea, but it's going to be very entertaining or do you need more, right? Do you need a more complex philosophical examination of the subject matter in film? If you need more, one's not going to be the guy for you. Maybe Tenet is a good focus for this
0: because that's one that I'm not aware of anybody else using that idea of here's some technology that allows certain people to travel backwards in time, but not in the way you think you can still see them. They're still right in the room with you, but they are experiencing the world backwards. And so to them, the laws of nature are applying in the reverse of the way that they should. They do end up then, so you could like a normal time travel movie, experience the same event several times. And like many time travel movies, they find out that Oh, you thought you were going to go back and change the past, but actually the present already takes into account that you were back there so that, you know, there's strictly speaking, no cheating when it comes to, you know, there's no way to change anything that's already happened. Although. Mark, you sound, you, you sound
3: crazy trying to describe not... what's going on in that movie. You going like on you in all yeah.
2: the... I'm listening. Like, do you know what went on in tenant? <laughs> I don't understand
3: what's going on in tenant. I have no idea. I could not explain it to you for the life of me, but I enjoyed the experience. Of thinking about these ideas and being on like a roller coaster. It was fun, right? But when you look, think back on it, is it a great, it's a great first time watching experience. I think Inception, you can watch multiple times and really enjoy enjoy it. Dunkirk, you can watch it infinite times. I think you can really enjoy it. But there are some of the movies that he makes. Like think about Memento. The first time you watched Memento, you were so wrapped up trying to figure out like how it works that watching it Once you know how it works, it's an achievement, but it's not as enjoyable, right? Watching Christopher Nolan films multiple times, they won't all work that way. You know, I think the Dark Knight trilogy, you can watch multiple times, but not all his films you can watch multiple times. I think Tenet, I really enjoyed it the two times I watched it. I'm never going to watch it again. I
0: think twice is probably, yeah, because I hadn't seen Memento again until yesterday since many years ago. And I remembered it very clearly. And yeah, the end did not have the emotional punch that it did the first time, but I still thought it was thoroughly enjoyable. And as a watching it just the second time to sort of see behind the magic trick, I think is fully warranted.
2: Well, there are certain, you know how there are certain books that or movies that you can watch over and over again and See something different, you're maybe your age, you're older now, and and that experience of that piece of art is different. And I think
3: That's how I feel about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's how I feel about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The more I grow, the deeper <laughs> the, the, the childhood, the, childhood <laughs> the beloved childhood favorite goes Absolutely. I'm sorry,
2: I can Go say ahead, I've say never that. had that experience. But um, <laughs> but I think actually, Lawrence, you have a good point. Like, I don't know like if the rewatchable I rewatched a lot of these movies and I saw Memento when it came out and it was mind blowing, you know, for my, I was 28 or something when it came out and it it was so much fun. It was such a fun movie and it was still an enjoyable experience watching it again this week, but it wasn't the same at all. And I wasn't really getting anything new from it that I would after, you know, rewatching, you know, something else, you know, 2001, you know, or something like that, you know, that you could rewatch again and get multiple messages from it.
0: You, Sarah, got me to watch Insomnia by bringing that up, which I was not on my list because he didn't write it, but he did. He did no, direct it. He was it. a
2: director for hire yeah. on it, that one. It does but He show, brought a
3: lot. He brought a lot to that film.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It has the feeling of one of his films. And, you know, of course, Al Pacino is is an acclaimed actor. But I felt like he was chewing the scenery in a way that Al Pacino does that Murphy, for instance, does not do, and so you could see how much, yes, he relies on his actors to sell this thing that i I don't know if it quite worked, you know it was enjoyable enough, I mean, just seeing Robin williams in, as as a <laughs> a villain
2: creepy murderer <laughs> but that one he has that again, he's playing with identity and those morally compromised character. You know, he does bring something of himself to the table, to the story that he didn't write. And so, and I thought that was interesting. I always find it interesting when you've got a character that why am I, why am I rooting for this guy? Those are good questions to ask, at least for me as a viewer.
1: But it's really hard to give a compelling answer to that if you're no good at providing an emotional core to the story. We brought up Interstellar and and it is really remarkable how Matthew McConaughey's character there is the, the only lead character I think out of any of these movies that I really kind of rooted for. It's amazing how little I gave a crap about Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception which really sucks because there's a the big reveal about his wife at the end which is a really neat plot twist but because there's but no emotional depth to his character for the whole way through. It leaves you kind of cold.
2: Well, I wonder if it's because the Interstellar story was hinged on the question of whether he was going to be able to go back. He was such a devoted father, but he was also so obsessed with going back into space and saving the planet or saving humanity. And there was, again, that Nolan's version of the ticking clock, which he utilizes in all of his films in some way. You know, like there was an emotional resonance there because we got to see him with his kids and he was devoted to them. And he, that was a big trade for that father.
1: And he does something in that film that he that he hasn't done in it. I don't think he's done in any of the other movies that I watched this week, which is start off, like the world has ended, but the first thing we see is Matthew McConaughey happy with his family being good dad. Yeah. And I think every other movie of his that I've watched this week starts with some kind of grim, morose Sequence of shots in like somewhere horrible. How does Oppenheimer start? Oh, with a mushroom cloud.
0: Yeah. Interstellar is the only one I did not try to watch. I mean, I didn't try to watch any of Batman stuff again just because I didn't know it was supposed to be good. Interstellar? <laughs> I, I saw it a while ago and I think I enjoyed it enough, but then since then I've just, oh, that was so silly. It's, a, you know, I remember it being kind of finding something kind of goofy about it. And so I didn't go back to it. And now, you know, reading. And what you are saying makes me think that it is worth another three hours of my time at some point.
2: Yeah, and that's another thing. His movies are long,
0: <laughs> long. Not the didn't first one. The following oh, one, uh, one wait, 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 wait. hour ten minutes. Did anybody
2: see the following? You saw I the. I did. I really want to.
0: Do yeah, I did, it that. I did see that.
3: I did see that. No, and I do see that. No, I
0: didn't like it. I, I realized know. I had seen it before. Oh, and there was actually I don't know when I don't know what circumstance I think it was just on TV at some point and somebody pointed out to me or I, I saw that oh this is a Nolan film like this is an important director this is you know probably 15 years ago i don't really know it actually still caught me by surprise the ending it is another one that has sort of a twist within a twist i mean the acting is not good overall and it's not yeah. wonderfully shot or anything but you can see that it's the same if you know in advance you <laughs> you can see the connecting threads in the directing and in the twistiness of it and i just wonder when we had a Ryan Johnson episode part of it is like Ryan Johnson is a guy who likes to play with genre. And I think maybe Nolan is too. It's just that he's less blatant and cheesy about it and tries to make us take it more seriously, maybe because of the genres that he is in. That if you're talking about these noir films, then, you know, what's a sticky noir? Like that doesn't seem like it would be enjoyable. It has to be something that makes you feel like, oh my God, the world is heavy. And, and so there's a self seriousness built into that genre that if you're, but yeah, maybe he is, he's a devoted student of that genre that, I mean, the villain in, well, I know he didn't write insomnia, but the fact that that guy is a writer of detective novels of the sticky low class, not very widely read noirs, I think says something about, and you could completely see uh, following as something that is very much in that tradition.
2: This is Sarah Lynn from Pretty Much Pop, and I wanted to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Green Chef. Kickstart your healthy eating routine this September with 80 plus weekly options featuring nutritionist approved and foodie approved recipes. Choose from eight meal preferences, including new, quick and easy, calorie smart, delicious discoveries and plant based options. Get ahead of the busy season with our convenient step by step recipes, including dinners ready in 25 minutes or less, 10 minute lunches, grab and go lunches, and clean snacks and beverages. Plus, Cut down on meal prep with pre-portioned and prepped ingredients, including pre-measured sauces, spices, and dressings, delivered right to your door. One of the things I personally appreciate about Green Chef is how easy and convenient it is to get a healthy meal on the table fast. Sometimes the last thing I want to do when I get home from work is food shop and cook. But with Green Chef, I have all of the ingredients waiting for me in my refrigerator. There's little to no chopping or prepping, and before I know it, dinner is served. Green Chef is also sustainable. Feel your best this back-to-school season with seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands, and now pretty much pop listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount. Ready to give Green Chef a try? Go to greenchef.com slash 60 PMP, that's 60 PMP, and use code 60 PMP to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash 60 PMP, and use code 60PMP to get 60% off. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. We haven't touched on The Prestige yet. Did anybody do a rewatch of The Prestige? Of course I did. I, didn't.
1: I did. So, that was also supposed to be about, about filmmaking, right? In
2: hell. Really? Is it also about filmmaking? I th-
3: this, this is what okay, I Okay, let's stop. All right. Everyone loves to look at Christopher Nolan in films it's like commentary on filmmaking. Like, There's all kinds of discussion about how Oppenheimer is that way, how Interstellar is that way, how all these films are that way. I don't see none of that shit. I don't see this deep philosophical statement that he's making about his craft. I just don't see that stuff. I think the dude has a specific thing that he's interested in. He's interested in big ideas. He's interested in men. And he makes films about that stuff. All this additional commentary that people are bringing to these things, I don't buy it at all. Not a single <laughs> bit. Do not buy. All it. right, all right. I, I, I think the
0: Prestige is my favorite of all of them. I didn't rewatch it this time because I had seen it just a few years ago with one of my kids. It's really good. I, I'm, I'm really noticing good. a co-written by Christopher Priest. Crazy.
2: And this was based on a on a novel, right?
3: I not do not originally know that, conceived. I know that Christopher Nolan, if he did not come up with the idea by himself, he's definitely like putting in the things that he's interested in into the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are just certain things he's interested in. He's interested in masculinity. He's interested in like mind bending things. He's interested in moral quandaries. And almost mm-hmm. all his films are going to have something like that going on. And An when obsession.
2: Obsession, obsession is a big one.
3: Obsession is what he's big, big on as well he likes
1: people who are geniuses in a way he likes men who are geniuses in a way that the outside world doesn't fully comprehend putting themselves through like trials and trauma in order to exercise their special gifts for the benefit of the rest of humankind who Mm -hmm. will remain ungrateful for the work that they've done. Mm -hmm. I think it was Sarah Lynn who said the word narcissism at the top of the podcast.
0: Probably. It's one of my favorite words. Can I just tie something up? Christopher Priest Wrote the original novel. It's not the same Christopher Priest that did the Black Panther stuff. <laughs> no. it is an elderly, it is an
3: eighty-year-old British guy. Okay, very well, that white. is not that's, so, that's not my Christopher Priest. Okay. No, no, I was legit shocked. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> this is why I think the prestige is is
1: is about probably about filmmaking because the big kind of horrible twist at the end is like all these people, the 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 audience who are like enjoying this fun show, they have no idea of like the gruesome human cost of what goes into like producing this bit of fun. I think that screams commentary
2: on filmmaking to me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Such a sacrifice. Yeah. This one though, I think was the least nice to women. It was pretty, awful. Really? pretty awful to women. I mean, you think so? do any?
3: I think Oppenheimer was like a bad guy with women. And so maybe it's just him reflecting the story that Oppenheimer. Sorry, sorry, were
1: you talking about the prestige or
3: Oppenheimer?
2: The prestige. I think the prestige oh, was the okay, But it okay.
0: has they both they both have a neglected woman who kills herself because right? they do.
2: She they can't do. We understand have the dead her. the dead wife. We have two dead wives, and we have Scarlett Johansson who's like going back and forth between the two. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing with either of these guys? They're both jerks.
3: One of them looks like Hugh Jackman, though.
2: Yeah, you're right about that.
3: And the other one looks like Christian (laughs) Bale. Like (laughs) You put up with a lot for those two.
2: (laughs) Speak for yourself, Lawrence.
3: (laughs) I will,
0: damn it. I will. What else are we looking at? I mean, we haven't really talked that much about Dunkirk yet that I feel like this is the kind of movie (sighs) that he should make. I don't know why I found the editing in Dunkirk and Oppenheimer similar, even though they were totally different. That Dunkirk no, is basically in real time. And Oppenheimer is biographical. But somehow, the flow in Oppenheimer felt
3: like the flow <laughs> in Dunkirk.
2: But Dunkirk <laughs> is still is non-linear. It's the non-linear storytelling.
3: Here's the thing about Dunkirk. I really enjoy the movie. Honestly, it's one of my favorite Christopher Nolan movies. But it feels as though he's being really cute with Dunkirk. Like, like there is no reason... To tell a historical story that way, the way he tells it, like he's jumping all over the place and changing perspective and all kind of stuff. And that's him bringing who he is as a filmmaker. And, and I, I see that. But it's more complicated than it needs to be.
2: You didn't like how all of the, the threads just kind of.
3: I do. I did like it. I did like it. But it feels like, why are we doing a historical film that way, though? Like, there's no reason to make oh, what was already compelling so much more complicated. Because that story is compelling by itself. Did I miss some of the complications? Because I thought that it was
0: regular people who are not in the military being called up to get on their boats. So that is thing. And then. And that's compelling. And then the main character trapped in France trying to get away and getting on a boat with people. And then they meet, they they run into, the civilians run into Killian Murphy's character. And there's some flashbacks of how Killian
3: Murphy's character got there.
2: And there's also the pilots, too.
3: This is complicated. There is no reason for this story to be told as complicated. Now, I admit there's a lot of moving pieces there, right? But the moving pieces, plus the time jumping, plus figuring out which is present and which is in the past, like, that is way too complicated. The story of Dunkirk is compelling by itself.
2: I disagree. There isn't just one story of Dunkirk. I think there's an infinite number of stories about Dunkirk. I think that's what made it so good for me was that they were heroes, but they weren't like heroes. You know, they weren't, they were just trying to survive. And that was, that's not the typical way that we see these World War II stories. And especially it was a World War II story told from a British perspective, which was also really, really interesting. No, I think there's so many different ways to tell that story. And that was part of the point of that movie.
1: Does Christopher Nolan get away with being able to say that because a lot of the the movies he makes are exploring confusing topics or subjects or themes and like you can see a reason why you would want to make a movie like Dunkirk and deliberately make it like an assault on every sense the whole way through and like want to have people come away from it feeling bewildered is that an excuse that Christopher Nolan can use or do people still need to be able to follow the plot this, again, was a problem I had with Inception, right? Because if you're if, if you're exploring something complicated, that's great, and it's okay to make your audience confused. But you still kind of have to be able to follow the plot to get much out of it.
2: Are you saying that Dunkirk was hard to follow?
1: Yeah,
0: I think a lot of his films are hard to follow, to be honest.
3: It absolutely was. I loved the movie, and it was hard to follow.
0: I either completely followed it, or I missed the fact that there were things that were hard to follow. But,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was definitely a confusing time. I mean, he sort of like... Airdropped us right into the experience. You know, again, we don't hear any, we don't learn any backstory about any of these characters. We're just dropped in there. And that was part of it too. And that is a confusing place to be. It felt very confusing. That poor kid, I just kept thinking, oh my God, that kid is the same age as my daughter, (laughs) you know? And this is what all of these kids were going through at that time. I mean, that was just a terrifying narrative. Good grief.
0: You're talking about the soldier kid, as opposed to Barry Keoghan, the now more famous Killian Murphy lookalike. Anyway, he, yeah, but who played the the teen who is on the boat?
2: Yeah, I'm talking about the original, the very first story that we're exposed to is the kid who's like the one, the one lone survivor of that initial attack before he ends up on the beach.
0: Fion Whitehead as Tommy. As opposed to Tom Hardy, that I didn't realize was in the film until it was over, because he's the guy in the plane and he has a mask on the
3: entire time. But you can see those beautiful lips. You can see those beautiful lips. You know those. You know those Tom Hardy <laughs> lips. Anytime you see them. come on. Why is Tom Hardy's face always covered up? The lips are in the uh, Batman movie. The lips are covered up. In- Half his movies, you can't see his beautiful <laughs> face. <laughs> Y'all laughing? That man has a beautiful face. I don't care. Oh, yeah.
2: He really does. You are correct. He does. <laughs> that I, we can agree on,
3: Lauren. I'm happy that we agree on that. Even though you're <laughs> dead wrong on how good the movie Dunkirk is and if it makes sense. Okay. <laughs> what else we got?
0: Batman? I mean, I didn't
3: re-experience yeah, how it. How you those about? I do not know what to say about Batman because oh. Batman was so universally beloved. Everyone loved that film. At least the second one. Um, the third one, I think, is actually the better one. I really enjoy the third one better than the second one. But people love those films so much, and I have no idea what to say that has not already been said about those
2: Well, what about just the fact that a reboot of a superhero franchise was kind of, at the time, unheard of? Joel Schumacher killed it, like, 10 or 15 years earlier, right? And then he rebooted it and he wasn't connecting the storyline between the Tim Burton ones or anything like that. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was, this was an origin story and that was kind of the first time that anyone did that. And I know that this has been said before, but he truly made it a Christopher Nolan film first before it being a superhero movie. It really has his fingerprints all, all over that movie. wonder how much...
1: Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker was inspired by Tim Burton's Batman movie because it feels like that probably came. How old is Christopher Nolan? That probably would have come out. No, of I don't pretty, know.
2: He was I born in 1970.
1: Yeah, because the tone of Tim Burton's Batman movies is basically sets the template for the crit. Like they are the Nolan Batman movies are definitely Nolan movies, but they are tonally there's a there's a real through line between them, and it's
0: part of what makes them such a good fit. You think with the Burton movies? or With the the Burton movies, yeah.
2: You don't think it was more a reaction to?
0: I thought he was throwing that away completely, you know, that that was we're not going to make comic book movies, we're going to make serious dramas that happen to, you know, serious crime movies that just happen to have people wearing wacky costumes. Those are different, but the first two, like Batman and Batman Returns aren't particularly silly. They're campy in certain
1: elements, like the costumes and whatever else, but they're noir-flavoured. They are. Like, very, very Definitely,
3: humbly. definitely noir-flavored. Definitely that. Yeah. Right.
0: Batman is noir-flavored. Yes, he's the creature of yeah. the night. Like, you yeah. can't avoid that. If you had a sunny Batman, what would, what would that even be? But before Tim Burton, Burton, Batman was Adam West.
1: Like, in the popular imagination, Batman, okay. Batman was Adam I, West.
0: I asked the dumb question that there's already an answer to. Yes, what would it yeah. be? It would be Adam West. Okay. It would be Adam <laughs> West. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. No, that's true. And I think he even took Gotham, which... was New York in the Tim Burton movies. He moved it to Chicago, which I thought was pretty cool. And you can really see that in the scene and the architecture and stuff like that. I thought New York was supposed to
0: be a metropolis in in DC land. Am I just wrong about this? That in official DC lore, New Uh, York and Chicago still exist alongside metropolis and Gotham? That these are just different cities? Or is, is one
3: the stand-in the I think he based
2: other? it on Chicago because that's where he's from. Or that's where he lived for a well, while. Well, he
3: based part two on Chicago. Part three, for the record, is in Pittsburgh. If you pay attention to part three and you see, like, they go to Pittsburgh Stadium and they're black and gold and they're in Pittsburgh because of the, the rivers. Like, part three is definitely Pittsburgh.
0: I guess whatever's the worst city, Detroit, is where, what, <laughs> number four, what is the new Batman? Is the new Batman
2: in a particular city? This is uh, a little not, not on he point. Needs to for... be, he needs to yeah, be in Milwaukee.
3: He's where he needs to be. He needs to be in Milwaukee. It's where the new Batman should be.
2: They haven't tried coming to Philly yet, so it's no good one, for me.
3: No one wants to go to Philly. Philly's trash. terrible city.
2: Philly is not trash. Philly rules. Good sandwiches, you know, it's though. so freaking hot here this week.
3: Good sandwiches in Philly. It's
0: a little surprising to Hogies, me. Maybe Hogies. it says says something about Sandwiches.
3: The... What does it what no stop Mark? Wait a minute. Hoagies are <laughs> sandwiches. We're not talking about movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're talking about sandwiches. We're but hoagies, Philadelphia,
3: apparently. But we call them
2: hoagies here. I know. technic I mean, it's all the same. It's a, is that's a synonym. Is, a is, of- is there is there bread? Is there bread
3: and meat in between? Yes sandwiches or no? Sandwiches
2: and hoagies are. Is there synonyms. bread?
3: Is there bread and meat in between? Sarah, is
1: Philadelphia in the U.S. a brand of cream cheese like it is here?
3: Yes, it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is. Good. Bottom line, I'm right. We keep going. <laughs> we now keep that that's. Going, but- <laughs> we, we had to answer that question <laughs>
0: concluded <laughs> every other time even when we were doing the halloween movies like if we have more than 5 movies on our list we could barely contain ourselves to fit in an hour all the discussion we want to have of these and it just seems like it says something about the shallowness maybe or maybe we're just not yeah. willing to take on the challenge because i've listened to you know a podcast on oppenheimer that was a full two plus hours long going to every little detail, but it just seems like what is really sinking into us is these are pretty. These are ambitious. They sort of get nonsensical. If you look at them too closely for the most part, maybe not Oppenheimer, but you know, the, the end, you know, is that, is
3: that our, how we're ending this episode with that verdict? <laughs> to, to be honest, the more that I think about, Okay, I love Christopher Nolan. I love him as a filmmaker. He's fun to watch. He's not fun to talk about. Like there's not much there to really he kind has, of dig your teeth into. He has sparks of there
1: is inspiration going on. He has cool ideas and either he or people he work with are, are talented enough to like realize them in a really interesting way. But he's not good at digging really deeply into the, the the themes that he's talking about and coming up with something that's ultimately a lot of fun to talk about. He's really, he's really good at having the first good idea and making a at least visually interesting movie around it. Christopher Nolan knows how to make Christopher Nolan movies.
2: He does. That's I mean, great, do you think there's a, a reason scene. why his movies come out in July and not in December? Is it because...
1: Want to sit in an air-conditioned theater for 3
2: hours. Well, and his movies are his movies are fun. His movies are plot driven. They are like you said they're pretty. They start out with a big idea, but he's not providing any answers for you. And he looks at the same ideas over and over and over again. You know, is he essentially creating kind of the same themes over and over and over again, which makes it which maybe is why he wins Oscars for how pretty his movies look and how great they sound, all the technical stuff.
0: I'm not going to fault a filmmaker or anybody. I was hearing something, a comparison to a musician who seems to like put out kind of the same, that some, they just have like this thing that they're trying to perfect. It's okay actually to have an output that is sort of redundant in a certain, in one aspect, if that's the thing that you're chipping away at. I don't know what the right emotion is, but it's the thing that he is clearly
1: really good at is the technical aspects of, like, making a compelling movie. But it feels like the thing he enjoys most is the cerebral, like, concept-led element of of making and writing movies, which isn't
3: the stuff that I enjoy most about his films. I will
1: say, though... Like like David Lynch.
3: Wow! Just shots fired at David Lynch? Are we really firing shots at David? I I completely disagree with you. I think
1: think David... Okay, here's... I've got a... What's the word when you have three pictures to get a triptych? together i'm gonna to put a triptych of filmmakers together and i want you to tell me if you think i'm onto something at this end at this end david lynch in the middle christopher nolan at this end Zack snyder
3: you're on to oh. something <laughs> you're on to something with that there is a through line between the From two. least <laughs> least to most dumb versions of mm-hmm. the same filmmaker mm-hmm. essentially oh my gosh! don't call Zack snyder dumb we can fight about this he's not dumb but there is a through line. in he's what more the, dumb. I would not agree with you. There's a through line, though, in what the three filmmakers are trying to do. I will say, though, going back to Mark's point, that if Christopher Nolan is drilling down, I think that's what he's doing. He's really trying to hone his storytelling. And I think that Oppenheimer is his best film thus far. Better than Memento. Because Memento is a really good idea. It's better than Dunkirk because Dunker gets really confusing for me. I <laughs> okay. think that Oppenheimer is confusing, but confusing in a way that makes sense. If That makes any sense. I don't know how to say that better. Like he's very confusing in the storytelling, but he does like play with like film stock to let you know, this is a black and white. And so these stories are aligned. This film is like very crisp. And so these stories are aligned. And this film over here is like antiquated in the way that it looks. And so these stories are like, like he helps you out much more in this than he did in, in Dunkirk. That's the reason why I say this one's better. But I will say that this is the best film he's done so far. And it seems like he's getting better. Tenet, I think, didn't succeed. It wasn't always successful, but it was good. Like he's getting better and like not making really dumb films that don't say anything. Now he's getting into an area where he's making films that are really smart and they're saying something interesting. Whereas although Interstellar is kind of dumb too, but that the dream movie watching it was great experience. Thinking back on it was dumb as hell. It just was. Well,
0: and I'm also trying to think about Memento again. I love Memento, but you know, if I then think of it through the point of view of the Carrie Moss character or, or the Joe Pantoliano character, and I'd been fooling him, or even what was really ultimately disappointing to me is how I felt about the decision. Sorry, I'm going to spoil a little bit, but the decision that the main character makes in the very end of the movie that I'm going to basically lie don't, to no, myself. No, 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 no,
3: no, no! Oh my anyway, god! Don't I, tell anybody that! Don't tell anybody that! Come on! Anyway,
0: man. I think I said enough for people that that know what I'm talking
3: about. That I did not the, feel, I did on. not feel that He's was emotionally
1: like that movie's 20 years old. No, no.
3: but Memento is so <laughs> reliant on plot. If you mess it up, that movie is ruined for people. Don't mess it up. I just feel
2: like they've had a lot of time to get to see that. The movie.
0: motivations of the I can just say I could say enough that they did not make a lot of sense to me. That's all. I'm saying in terms of is this a dumb movie with a great concept? Maybe it actually is. That when it comes down to the meat-headedness of all the characters, <laughs> Like, you're just trying to figure out what's going on and piece things together, and it seems so brilliant from that point of view. But once you get over that, I'm not actually sure if it's as psychologically rich
3: as it needed to be. You're right. You're right. For a movie that I love. Sarah and Al, just because a movie is old does not mean that you can't spoil that movie. Pass of Glory, for example, that is a very spoilable movie. I would never spoil that movie because people probably haven't seen it. I would venture to say, outside of hardcore Christopher Nolan or film heads, a lot of people have not seen Memento. It is not one of those movies that you think of as, like, must-see. It's just not. Why not? I, I,
1: appreciate, I appreciate that you care about those people's feelings. Well,
3: I do. I just <laughs> don't. I care I just a great don't. deal. I do care a great deal.
1: I care more about the people whose feelings would be hurt if we didn't cover the depth and intricacy of the, the plot. At the ending of Memento, with the kind of critical depth that only Martin Luther King must.
3: I say. mean, at least just like to say, there's a spoiler people. coming. Spoiler wor- warning, you know. Walk away <laughs> for like you, five seconds or something.
2: What do you think? So, for someone who hasn't been introduced to Christopher Nolan movies yet, what should be their first experience?
3: Definitely Memento. What,
2: what's the first movie Ooh, that you would introduce them to? I
3: would say definitely. Yeah, I don't think so. Memento is so complicated. It's not um come on probably the prestige probably prestige is a good shout. you know i think that might sure. because you also get like the like how good he is with actors he is very good with actors and then you also get like the stuff that he's interested in cerebrally because with memento you don't get exactly what he's interested in that could be a straight up nor tell like like you don't get the kind of things he's kind of taken up with so i think something like The prestige is the way to go.
2: The prestige is the way to go. I don't know. I think Memento would be a really good, and that was my introduction to Christopher Nolan. So maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience. I think you do get some classic Christopher Nolan tropes that he revisits over and over and over again, starting with Memento. And especially just like who you are. You know, he is exploring like, who am I really? This is a character who has no idea really who he is. He cannot make new memories. He has talked about that type of, some type of existential crisis throughout. I think that is a big through line for him. Who who the heck am I? Is a question he keeps asking over and over again.
1: I think Memento has a better, tighter, more coherent plot than probably any of his subsequent movies. I think it's easier to follow than almost anything else he's made even though it's like deliberately confusing because of, the, because of the conceit of the film. But I watched it a long time ago. I don't remember ever being confused by Does it. Does
2: the, also the color portion that goes backwards and then also the black and white portions that go forwards. I think I would definitely start with Memento.
0: It's sort of like M. Night Shyamalan is known for the twist. So if you say, how do I introduce someone to M. Night Shyamalan? You don't show him something that doesn't have a twist. Like that's sort of the point of the, the dude. And so similarly, has he ever need made anything go- that
3: doesn't have a twist? I mean, they, they're I, every
0: everything they're, has a twist. In my, we, we can everything. we can discuss him cool. in that. I don't think Avatar Lost
3: has a twist. It does. It. Shockingly, <laughs> it is that terrible. Is That's the, piece. And That's and the that is... twist. He took a great thing and he made it terrible. That's <laughs> the twist. But
0: in terms of you know, so you got to have something with innovative but ultimately nonsensical sci-fi <laughs> bit in there, and. How much you then build it up, like this is what I thought was kind of silly from what I remember about Interstellar, is that there was something about, and I definitely felt that way about Tenet, that this is actually sort of nonsense, and as cool as Inception is, and as resonant as that is in the culture, don't look at it too closely, it's kind of nonsense. Well, if it's going to be that way anyway, Memento is definitely the best of those in terms of not feeling like you put so much time and energy into something that's going to end up being nonsense when you look at it closely.
2: My husband says that his movies, we were talking about Interstellar in in particular, that they've been wrongly classified as science fiction, whereas he thinks that they're really fantasy because he's bringing these kind of magical elements, things that you can't really explain away into so many of his films. I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
1: I was just thinking how he... In his choice of subject matter and in the structure of his storytelling, he reminds me a lot of Philip K. Dick and those kinds of stuff. So I would say very solidly sci-fi and sci-fi and that kind of cerebral American tradition.
0: But I get the idea that you could defend sci-fi as, it doesn't have to be hard sci-fi, it could be fantasy sci-fi. It's an idea, but then... And I guess he was one of the executive producers on Transcendence, which was another one. It's just a silly movie, frankly, but it has you know one of the things of oh, that's how it uploads our brains. You know that's a, a catchy idea nowadays. We just talk, we talked about Black Mirror only recently, it's all that kind of stuff. Well, I think this is a good way to any any final thoughts. Christopher Nolan knows how to make the movies that he wants to
1: make. I think, and Oppenheimer is real good.
0: <laughs> Please keep making movies. We like them. And not, despite like our quibbling
2: yeah
1: <laughs> sorry i just want to say I, I i very badly want christopher nolan to make a spy thriller some kind of political thriller in the vein of
3: he's made like, spy in,
1: thrillers. in the vein of like tinker taylor soldier spy a really slow like luxurious that was the stuff that i liked most in oppenheimer is that he let killian murphy act the shit out of that screen it
0: was beautiful i want him to make a three-hour long really boring like spy thriller <laughs> I want him to fall in hard times. So he has to make the GI Joe. He has to revive the GI Joe franchise and make the GI Joe. I would cause... love that. I would love that. <laughs>
1: that <laughs> is the natural successor to Greta Gerwig's Barbie is uh, G.I. Christopher jo- Nolan's GI Joe. It would be.
2: I think that it was Oppenheimer and Barbie were just perfect yep. bookends. <laughs>
0: Oppenheimer is Nolan's GI
1: Joe.
2: Exactly.
0: All right. Wave bye to the viewers. Bye, guys. Bye, viewers. Bye. bye. Get more pretty much pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com/prettymuchpop. Pretty much pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network and it's also presented by openculture.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better
1: on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help it's Stangee Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stenge Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangey Law Firm has an office in Wichita, Kirk Stangey, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.